So you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about lesbian This is a WLRN extended interview. My name is Maria Klumper Johnson, um, and I live in Trumansburg, New York, which is a, a little village about eight miles north of Ithaca, New York, um, which is in, in central New York, about an hour south of Syracuse. I've lived in the Ithaca area since 2001 was when I moved here, and I actually moved here to start a PhD program in geology at Cornell. There are two universities in this area. There's Cornell and there's Ithaca College, and that's sort of the economic engine of this area and, um, and brings a, you know, a lot of people who end up living here either went to school at one of those schools or, or works there. Um, I mean, not exclusively, but there's a, there's a population of people who are sort of attracted to this area because of the schools, um, and that's definitely what brought me here, um, and that kind of ties into the, the story of how I got into carpentry. I've always liked building, and um, even as a kid, you know, my dad was a woodworker, as was my grandfather, and I, I was just always drawn to, to building, and specifically to woodworking, and just thinking about how things were made and how things were put together. Um, I did... You know, as a, as a kid, I would do projects with my dad, and um, this is a story that's similar to the story that a lot of women who come to my workshops tell me. They're like, yeah, you know, I did projects with my dad, and I took wood shop in, in middle school or high school, so I did all that stuff. But it, it never really occurred to me that this was a, this was a trade that I could go into, um, that this was something that was open to me. I think that, I mean, it has something to do with my gender. Um, it probably has a little bit more to do with, um, you know, my family background um, and our socioeconomic class. I mean, I was one of those kids that was expected to go to college, which I did, and um, going into the trades wasn't really seen as a, a legitimate option. Not that it was discouraged, it was just never really presented as, as this is something you might consider doing. Um, and I think for most of the kids in my high school, this is something that we continue to see, it was like there was the college track, and the kids that were on the um, vocational track were sort of shuffled off into another school or another building. I will say that my school was fairly progressive in that they offered an, an auto shop class, and there was um, wood shop, and and you know really expensive art program that had a lot of hands on stuff. So, so we did get exposure to that. But it was like if you were considering a career in the trade, you were sent it off to that at, at high school and sent to the vocab program, which was in another you know another school. So I never, even though I continued to build, and even in college, I would I would come home on on breaks and just want to build stuff, and I, I taught myself stuff. I, I, you know, my dad had this workshop. He taught me how to use tools, and then I would just get books on, on woodworking, and I made a couple of shaker tables in college, and I vividly remember this one summer. I went to school in California, and I stayed in California for the summer instead of coming home, and I was working at UC Berkeley in the library, and I was just getting really depressed, and I realized that the only thing that was going to shake me out of this depression was to build something. And so 
I got a, you know, a Sunset magazine that had plans for this, like, California-style Adirondack chair. And I went to the Berkeley Public Library where they had a tool lending library, and I checked out some tools so that I could I could build this little project. So I, you know, all with hand tools, I built this little uh, Adirondack chair. And I vividly remember that. It was, like, it was a deep-seated need in me to, to build something. When I went to college, I decided to major in computer science. So looking back on that, I realized that that came out of this urge to create. And that was like an le- academically legitimate way to have a, a creative career. And I, I really enjoyed programming. I like creating something from nothing. I like aspects of it. What I didn't like was that it was all very virtual and you're sitting all the time and you're staring at a screen. So when I graduated, I actually went and worked in programming in Seattle for a couple of years. And on top of those negatives that I just listed, working in the dot-com industry in the late 90s added this additional layer that really rubbed me the wrong way, which was I was just working with so many people who were in this to make money. Like, that was their own reason for being there, and that didn't resonate with me. But, but there was this creative aspect of it, which is what drew me to that in the beginning. Now, what was missing from that was uh, using my body, and so I, I have a very athletic background. I always did sports, and I loved being outside. I loved using, using my body. I loved using, like, fine motor skills. So, once again, looking back at that, I realized that that's what drove me to minor in geology, I took a, an earth sciences class to fill a um, you know, physical science requirement, and all of a sudden, we were going on these amazing field trips, like two hours away from um, where I went to school, and you know, we'd be outside in you know, the California wilderness and looking at this amazing stuff and like hiking around, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be like, outside in the fresh air using my body. For these intellectual, and, and also my mind for these intellectual pursuits. And so that's what drove me to minor in geology. I did a summer internship right after college. And then when I decided to, to quit programming, I followed this other passion, which was really driven by this other aspect of my personality. What I realized after starting a PhD program in geology is, first of all, I'm not... I wasn't terribly passionate about the subject matter. So when I did, in the end, get to do field work, you know, I liked being outside, but I wasn't passionate about what I was studying. And I also did not really like being in an academic environment that was really research-based. I just missed making things. Yeah, doing and making, and even though I got to be outside, I I, I never had that real creative outlet. And you can sort of... You can transfer that creative outlet to, like, writing papers and and stuff like that, but that just felt like too much of a stretch for me, on top of the fact that I wasn't really passionate about the field of study. So I did, you know, after a year and a half in that geology program, where I got to go on some pretty amazing field trips to South America. Um, Even with all those perks, I realized it wasn't for me. And so I, in, in 2001, I guess, I, I dropped out of that program. And that's when I went and got a job in the trades. And, and that sort of started the whole thing for me. And, and that's where I realized that I could uh, do this creative work, work with my whole body, 
be using my fine motor skills and be, be creating these really beautiful things. And I start, when I started, I started in a cabinet shop, so it was a very indoor environment. But about two years in, I went and started doing home construction. So there, I got to work outside in all kinds of weather, doing really physical work and getting to use my mind. I think that a lot of people don't realize how much you have to think as a carpenter. I mean, there are certainly trades jobs out there where you don't have to think too much. It's, it's really, you know, brute work and re- repetitive work, and that's great work for some people. I first wanted something where I was thinking all the time, and in residential home construction, I mean, you're always problem-solving. You're always bumping into to situations that you've never encountered before and you have to draw on your past experience and come up with a new way of solving this problem, think through whether it's, you know, be structurally sound, if it's going to keep weather out, water out, um, wind out. Um, so it was finally a, a trade that satisfied all these different aspects of my personality. Hammerstone is a construction company, right? Right. So um, I actually run, well, they're under one sort of legal entity. Uh, there are two two branches to the business. So Hammerstone School of Carpentry for Women is the entity under which I run the, the carpentry workshops for women. Um, and also like we're doing our work in Puerto Rico. And then Hammerstone Builders is my contracting business um, where, you know, we do residential Renovations, new construction, um, general contracting. When did you decide to open the school? It's just for women, right? Yeah, so the Hammerstone School is, we teach classes that are just for women. I will say that we, we've had requests, we've had men say to us, but, but what about me? And, <laughs> sure. What <laughs> sure. about me? And, right, there are plenty of... Um, Unfortunately, not right in Ithaca, but there are lots of carpentry schools that offer workshops in woodworking or carpentry, and if you go to any of those, even though they are, you know, mixed-gender classes, they are pretty much exclusively male. So it was important to us to offer these classes that were just for women. But to answer your question about when we started this school, I started teaching classes in 2013. So I had been working as a carpenter for about 12 years, 11, 12 years at that point. And even before that, I remembered, I remember having thought, um, you know, I, I would love to teach carpentry classes for women. Part of that came from um, running into other women who were like, oh, wow, you're a carpenter, that's really cool. I want to do that too. How do I get into it? So I wanted to share you know, the knowledge that I had and create a support system for them. Um, part of that desire came from um, just seeing other carpentry classes for women. I had gone and taken a timber framing class at a, a school in western Massachusetts called the Hartwood School for the Home Building Class. And like I said, those two classes that I took, I was the only woman in either of those classes. Now, one of those classes only had four students. So that was 25%. So that's actually really great. Pretty good, yeah. <laughs> but the other class was like, you know, 18 or 20 people, and I was the only woman. And that's a lot more typical uh, representation of women in the trades in general and in these carpentry classes. But Hartwood offers a carpentry for women class as one of their workshops. And so I saw that other people were doing this. Other schools were offering this. And yesterday, up in northern Vermont, there are another school that offers carpentry classes for women. And I was like, oh, 
this is a thing, and it seems really great. They seem to be people seem to want to come to these classes, and it seems like something that I could do, I could offer in my location. But I was having those thoughts um, maybe in like 2008, 2009, and, and part of it was that I didn't, I didn't feel like I had developed my training. I didn't feel like I had gotten to a point in my training where I could turn around and teach yet. And part of it was just like the right project, the right set of circumstances didn't come together until uh, winter of 2012-2013. An acquaintance approached me, and she's now a great friend of mine. She wanted to build a tiny house. She's, you know, a tough woman. She's a farmer, right? She works with her body. She works with her hands. But she didn't have any carpentry skills. So she approached me. She said, I want to build a tiny house. Do you think I can? And where should I go to learn? And I said, first of all, yes, I think you can. And don't go any place else. This actually offers me the perfect opportunity to start teaching these classes that I wanted to teach. And if you go and take a class, you know, a week-long class or, like, a three-day workshop, you'll get a taste of what it means to be a carpenter and to build and to build a tiny house. But building a tiny house is a huge endeavor, and having, like, a week or two weeks of carpentry education and then leaping into it, you're going to feel on your own and probably a little lost, uh, you know, get tackling this endeavor and sort of um, organize a series of classes around your tiny house construction, not only will you be gaining the skills, but you will have this team working with you. And then in the, in, in the interim, between the classes and after the classes, I will be working alongside you. Because that's, that's one of the things that I struggle with. Like, I want women to get exposed to this education, and I want them to feel like they can tackle anything. And at the same time, I know from personal experience how hard it is to build a house, let alone a tiny house, and I don't get in over their heads without a, a support system. So this was the perfect opportunity for me to start offering these classes and for Liz to get her tiny house built. So in 2013, we started organizing the, the carpentry classes for women. And the, the first class that we offered, all we did to market that class was hang a couple flyers at Green Star, which is the local food cooperative. Mm-hmm. And within two weeks, we had a waiting list for that first class. That is how intense the demand was. So we, we offered those two six-day classes, and that was really the start of it. And since then, I've been working on you know, refining the structure of our classes and figuring out how to run a sustainable business, personally, around offering these workshops. Everything has sort of fallen in place since then. Sure. Do you cap out? How many women can you allow into a workshop effectively? Yes. Good question. We have a max of 12 students in our workshop. When we have 12 students, we have two instructors. It's usually me and a teaching assistant. Beyond that, first of all, we, we are limited by the tools and the space that we have. But it really just, you know, you don't get the type of in-depth one-on-one experience with the students, they don't get the one-on-one experience with the teacher. Especially if we're doing a project like building a tiny house, it just becomes more people than you can manage on a job site. What motivates you to continue the women's carpentry school? And is there a market for this? I guess, yes, right? You said you had a waiting list the first time you ever posted. Yeah, I mean, definitely in the first year, we had a lot of the people who had been basically waiting for something like this to come up. Since 
starting the school, we've had to work on our marketing or outreach, basically like letting people know that this exists, available. And what most people keep this going is the response of our students, right? Like every time I offer a class, I'm just re-energized by the enthusiasm of the women who participate and their personal stories of how they've been wanting to do this work and there aren't a lot of opportunities to learn it that are free from all the social BS surrounding women doing traditional men's work. So just that personal interaction that I have with women in our classes and hearing their stories and hearing their desire to learn this, that's what keeps me motivated. And yeah, we you know, it is a challenge to continue to market it. Ithaca has about 30,000 people. It's not a huge town. And there's constantly new people coming into the community. But they need to continue to hear about what we're doing. And of those people, right, some of them, it'll take them a couple years to to see it, to hear about it, to have this desire to go, but then to, like, fit it into their scheduling and fit it into their budget, you know, to stay off work or a couple days off work to to make it happen. Um, So for us, it's just continuing to let people know that we exist and what we're doing and coming up with new courses to offer so that people who have come to one course can come and take something new. Really, the bread and butter of our program is our two-day basic skills workshop, and that's really introducing women to um, the basic tools of the trade and some of the basic carpentry skills that you need to then go on and do anything. So we start by sharpening a carpentry pencil using a utility knife. We learn how to measure and mark the ins and outs of the tape measure, how to how to mark the board to cut it, how to draw a square line across the board. We learn how to cut, and we start by using a hand saw, and then we move to the circular saw, which is the largest that we use in that class. So students are getting introduced to the safety aspects of it using a tool that's a little bit less intimidating and a bit safer, and then we jump into some real power tools because that is a goal of ours, is to get women feeling comfortable using these fairly intimidating tools, and tools continuously told are dangerous, and and the subtext behind that is that we therefore shouldn't be using them, making those tools safe, that then lets women go on and take the knowledge that they learned around the circular saw and extrapolate that to a table saw or a chop saw um, or other, other power tools. And then we, in that basic skills class, we teach fastening both with a drill and a driver, using screws, and hammer and nails. So that's really the, the course that attracts the largest pool of students. And so we continue to offer that um, five or six times a year. Um, but that, you know, then within the local Ithaca environment of the students who are interested in taking a class, you know, a lot of them have already taken that class. So we need to be constantly thinking about what other classes do people want to take that will expand their, you know, carpentry horizons and that are logistically feasible for us to offer, you know, within the constraints of this being, um, at least at this point, it's not a full-time business, right? This is something that um, we do on the side alongside our our contracting work. So we have found that over the past few years, I haven't looked at it exactly, but I get sort of the gut feeling that our students are maybe like 40% out of towners and 60% Ithacans, you know, drive each day to the class versus people who are coming from further away and have to find lodging to, to stay and participate. 
So we are attracting folks from a much greater geographical area. But, you know, we're limited by how far people can drive in a day's drive to get to Ithaca to take a class. We rarely get people who, we have one student come from Nashville, right? And she came two classes back to back. So she really made like this whole vacation out of it, which justified, you know, basically a day of travel um, to get here. Most people are coming within a like, I'd say six to eight hour drive, six hour drive of, of Ithaca. You mentioned your 101 class being the most popular. I love that you offer the other workshops, like the drywall class and the starter electrical class. Those are actually brand new classes. We're really excited about them. Um, For one thing, it allows me to bring in other teachers, which up until now, I have personally taught most of the classes at Hammerstone. Christina, who's my employee at Hammerstone Builders, she TAs most of the classes when we have enough students and has also taught some of the classes on her own. But up until now, it's been mostly topics which I personally can teach. For me, it's really exciting to offer courses that go beyond my personal area of expertise. I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable doing electrical wiring for my own work, but it's not something that I've been trained in. So to have a professional electrician, woman electrician, to teach that class is really exciting. And then the drywall class, and this one is so funny because, you know, the electric is really sexy. Like, people really want to sign up for that class. Getting folks to sign up for a drywall class, and and this resonates with me personally, it's like, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, they're like, oh, gosh, drywall, ugh. Oh, and, man, and that would be all <laughs> That's sexy, oh, too. That's great. You, you need to come to that class and, and tell your friends and you tell them how exciting it is. And it is, you know, some of these skills that you learn, they can be so frustrating when you're first starting. I mean, even driving a screw until you practice and practice and practice and get the little tips and tricks yeah. that are effectively, they can be so frustrating and a real turnoff. And then when you get it, all of a sudden there's this grace to doing that, and it becomes pleasurable. So I've actually done quite a lot of plaster work, uh, you know, plastering a whole wall with a trowel, especially using natural plasters and doing straw bale. And that's something that I, I mean, I just love that. And, and partly it's because I've done it enough where I can get to the point of feeling proficient, and then you get that groove where you're just in it and it's flowing, Unfortunately, drywall, I haven't gotten to that point yet. And so for me, there's still this obstacle of like, oh, I'm going to try and I'm going to be sad. And I know that part of that is just doing it enough to get to that point where it flows and you're proficient and you feel efficient and it looks great when you're done. So, I mean, I think that's something in, in all of these skills that can be really frustrating at first and then when you get it, it's like a dance. I mean, it's just feels good when you know what you're doing and things happen the way you intend them to, or when they don't go the way you intend them to, you know what what to do to, to fix it. So personally, it's been a challenge to promote the drywall class for me because I haven't gotten to that point. <laughs> so I need my, you know, my evangelist like you to, to talk about how awesome it is. It kind of brings me to my next question. If you're attempting to do something and you're just failing at it, it must kind of reinforce the idea 
for women like oh see this is why women don't do these things like no you just need to learn how to do it and then you'll do it you know yeah that's a huge challenge and I see that in the women in in our classes and I see it in myself and I continue to feel it when we do this work as a very tiny minority only three percent of carpenters in the U.S. are women that's a minuscule minority when we step out and take a risk and try to do something like this we feel the weight of proving our entire gender on our when we do it. When I was getting started, it was like, man, I have to prove that I can carry this. I can carry these boards. I can be just as strong. I can work just as hard as the guys. And I had to do that on the first try, or I felt like I had to do it on the first try. And then it became like, I have to demonstrate that I can do just as nice work or even better, even better work you know, in my trim carpentry, and I have to be able to solve these problems. And now, as a contractor, it's like, I feel like I have to prove that I can run this business just as well or better than, than any dude doing this work. And that is, it's really a crushing weight yeah. as you're trying to do something. For people learning a skill, so when students come to our classes, whether it's actually coming from an external source or whether we've entirely internalized it, that pressure to, like, make a perfect cut on the first try is what stops people from trying and failing and trying and failing. I think something that, as adult learners, we struggle with regardless, right? When we're learning as kids, we have this resiliency to try, to fail, to get up, brush ourselves off, and, and just try again. I mean, I see this in my kids to varying degrees, depending on their personality type, but to just, like, continue trying and then... We grow up and we're like, oh, I just know how to ride a bike. And we forget that learning process. So I think of board as adults, like, getting back into that mode of trying and failing and trying and failing is hard. But then as women, when, you know, you put something on Facebook and and it's like, maybe it's like your first or second try. You're not doing it perfectly, but you're doing it. And you get a comment like, oh, you should be doing this different. That. That can really stop the learning process. Or if, you, if you've even just internalized, like, oh, gosh, I hammer like a girl, you're never going to, like, try and fail and try and fail and try and fail enough to, to learn. So we address that explicitly in our classes. And I try to, you know, when I see that cropping up, that internalized idea that we have to do it perfectly the first time, I try to, like, point that out with a sense of humor. As you can imagine, some people, like, carry that weight a a little bit more than other people. But we do try to explicitly address the fact that, as women, we're constantly told that we can't do this. And really, it's just that we need to practice. We all need to practice, like, hundreds and hundreds of times of hammering a nail, of driving a screw before it feels second nature. It's just muscle memory. It must be great to have a woman's only class because, you know, everybody's kind of in the same spot. So you don't have to feel this scrutiny of, oh, I'm, I suck at this. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't do it. Right. And even, I, I will say that, like, women come into our classes with different levels of experience and different physical aptitudes, but the ability to learn physical skills quickly or less quickly. One thing I've noticed is I've had a couple of hairdressers come and take our class, and we're just into, like, learning physical skills and, and 
uh, sort of fine motor dexterity. And they, they, even though they have no carpentry experience, they end up picking that stuff up really quickly. And then I have other women who have desktops and have not had to learn a physical skill in their careers for years and years and years. And so for them, often it's more challenging. So we do have women who come in with different levels of experience who pick stuff up more quickly and less quickly. The common denominator is that all of us have experienced that male gaze. same, And so we get it, and we're more supportive. Like, it's we're the students who pick it up quickly. We know what it feels like to be looked at as if we can't. And so we're never going to look at other women in the class who are struggling a little bit more to learn a skill with that critical gaze, right? We, we get it. We've all been on the receiving end of that gaze. And so that's what makes the classes supportive and empowering for, for everybody. What would you say during a class are the typical obstacles women face or perceived obstacles? Like maybe their fears or hesitations women have. Yeah, that's really great because we, a great question, we start every class by doing a round of introductions. And during that introduction, I ask people to, you know, just lay their fears out on the table so we can, there's something freeing about expressing it, and then we can address them explicitly. And so having done this for, you know, five years now, I see a lot of the same fears cropping up. And it's the ones you would expect, fear of power, you know, fear of losing a, a limb. Um, <laughs> fear of heights, which doesn't come up in our, our classes. We're not usually going up on ladders. One thing that comes up a lot is fear of doing it right, right? Like fear of, fear of not being successful, right? So that gets our wanting to do stuff perfectly the first time or, or quickly. One that comes up that I didn't realize would and, and then started cropping up a lot is a fear of math. When I do carpentry, I don't think, oh, there's a lot of math here. But there actually is, especially compared to other trades that people are in, other professions that people are in. And I forgot that, you know, there are people who never have to measure and just like the physical skills, if you're not learning physical skills every day, it's hard to learn physical skills. If you're not practicing your measurement and, and sort of basic math skills, those things can atrophy and you sort of forget how to learn new ways of thinking mathematically and, and spatially. It's like a lot of spatial thinking. And I think that there are like intrinsic differences in the way that, you know, the way that people think and some people are very spatial and some people are not and some people really get math um, intrinsically, and some people don't. And some people pick up physical skills really quickly, and some people don't. Um, but those are all things that, no matter what our base level and our aptitudes, they're all things that, with practice, become easier. Um, and so that's what I try to foster. I try to talk about the math skills in the same way we talk about the physical skills. If you haven't been measuring something every day for the past 10 years, you have to practice until it becomes second nature. Um, and then, of course, there's like the, there is the physical side of it. And we actually spend, like, people have the fear of being physically capable of doing this. And we take a good section of the two-day basic skills class to talk about physical aptitude and the fact that as women, we are, in general, smaller and less physically strong than men. But... First of all, that's not what carpentry is all about, right? There are long stretches of time in my contracting business will do stuff that is incredibly not physical, right? I will go for long stretches of time where I don't have to lift anything heavy. 
and then the truth is there there is a lot of physical stuff that you have to do. And one thing that we can do as women is to constantly think about how to use um, mechanical advantage to help us. So I encourage people to think about how to, first of all, position your body ergonomically to use levers or pulleys or cooperation to get a task done. And just developing that skill of thinking about the smart ways of doing things is something that someone who can brute force everything they get out of practice of, you know, always thinking about the smart way. And even the most brute force food will eventually bump up against the physical limitations. And so our advantage is that we're, we're always thinking in that manner. And so we're always doing things smartly and using the advantage. But the other thing that I talk about is um, we tell ourselves this story that we are not strong. And sometimes that holds us back from achieving our full potential. Right now, our individual full potential is going to be less from the person next to us. It's going to be less than a guy. But if we're constantly telling ourselves the story that we don't have upper body strength, then we're never going to gain upper body strength. What I do when I'm working, and so first of all, I come from this athletic background. Like, I've, I've always used my body. I, you know, I did sports in college, and so I, I built up this muscle mass during my youth, which has certainly served me well in what I do, because even if I fall out of physical training, it comes back very easily. But the other thing that that gave me is an attitude that I can do stuff, and so I'll walk up to something heavy, and instead of thinking, oh gosh, this is really heavy, I'm never going to be able to do it which if I have that attitude, I'm not going to be able to do it. I walk up to it and I think, oh, I've done this before and I can do it. I'm not saying that someone who's never, you know, lifted three-quarter inch of plywood is going to just be able to, with a little bit of attitude, walk up to a three-quarter inch sheet of plywood and lift it up. Right. Right? It's not how it works, but what I do is every time there's a heavy task in my, in my day-to-day life, in my carpentry life, even just in my home life, I don't think, oh, that, you know, this five-gallon jug of water that I have to pour into my water filter is really heavy. I'm never going to do it. I just say, oh, I can do it. I know I've done it before. I'm going to do it. And in doing it, I build, I maintain, build that strength. So I see that as an attitude that is not necessarily cultivated in, you know, general culture in, you know, here in the States. I love that you just said that because, you know, just because we're weaker than men doesn't mean we're weak. Going along with what you said about being an athlete, if you use your body in such a way once, then you know what you can do for the next time. And then the more you use it, the more you know yourself and you have that confidence. And then you can do things just, you know, like you were saying. And you learn your limits and you learn what those limits truly are so that you don't push yourself beyond them and and hurt yourself. But there's also like... Sometimes our perceived limits are just temporary limits. And if we go and carry a half-inch sheet of plywood every day, then pretty soon we'll be able to carry a three-quarter-inch right. plywood, if that's what you want to do. Yeah, right, 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 right. You know, we just came back from this trip to Puerto Rico, and I was, you know, just observing people on the plane putting their luggage in the carry-on bin. And, you know, family, and the, you know, the, the, the husband, you know, did all the lifting. Right. And it's not like the wife couldn't have. Right. I mean, maybe she couldn't now, but it's like, 
especially chivalry, right? Let me help you. But that helping, like, takes away your independence, your strength, your ability to do stuff for yourself, which could be a metaphor for Puerto Rico <laughs> in and of itself. So you've been doing this for a while now, working with both men and women. You know, obviously there are going to be differences there with how each works. What would you say are women's strengths in the field? I have a story that illuminates this perfectly. So let's see, maybe a year and a half ago, Christina and I had a contracting job to replace the windows in the family's house. And the wife worked from home. So she was there in her office as we were working, and we were replacing windows in her office. And this is, you know, a tricky situation because we want to be respectful, and yet this work is, is sort of loud, and we're opening up her house to the open air as she's sitting and doing her writing work. So anyways, we're wrapping up this job, and at one point, uh, she was having a phone conversation with a friend in the room while we were working. I was, of course, eavesdropping, but um, she was like, I, I just hired these contractors to do this work in our house, and it's two women, and it's really lovely. They're so respectful, and they're so quiet, and so efficient, and they're fun, and they're clean. And we were, you know, Christina and I were, we heard this, and we were patting ourselves on the back, and, you know, it felt really good. But the things that we bring to the job, which is, you know, respectfulness and care and cleanliness and organization, these things are, were being recognized. So then we finish up the job, and we're, we're saying goodbye and just chit-chatting with her. And she said, I find it really interesting that you only hire women, which is, in fact, not true, but was the case at the time. It was just me and Christina working. And she said, I just I have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that women can do this work. Is it, are, you, are you really able to find women who can do this carpentry work? Because it's so typical. And I could never, like, I don't have any upper body strength, and I could never do that work. <laughs> this, is, this is what she said. This is what she said. Having just talked about, having just witnessed us do excellent work that she was really happy with, she was complimenting and like sort of recognizing all the additional things that we brought to the table beyond doing the physical work. And it wasn't a terribly physical job, but there were there were physical aspects. We had to like hoist some windows into place. And I was like, here we are, an example of having just done this work. And you still see the stereotype that women can't do this work, even when you have a concrete example right in front of you. Well, you're an anomaly, right? Right, right, right. We are. I'm an anomaly. That's another thing that I really struggle with, right? I'm a unicorn, and there are none other right? Definitely not true. And another thing that, you know, at first feels really good. Like, we all like to be recognized for doing something unusual but after a while it becomes tiresome first of all because you're never sure if your recognition is because you're a woman carpenter because you're doing a really good job right it's also tiring because it's like damn i don't want to be the only woman i don't want to be constantly looked at constantly on display constantly having to prove that women can do this work and even after proving that women can do this work being seen as like oh but not all women can do this work, right. just, just special women, just the, just the unicorns, right? So this story illuminates several things. First of all, her attitude that she doesn't have physical strength, so that she's never going to go and build it. And second of all, this like idea that the women who are doing this work are unusual and are not representative of the po- of possibilities for all women. And I get it. Like, not every woman wants to be a carpenter, and that's 
fair and I don't want them to or expect them to. Just like not every student wants to be a carpenter. Not everybody is cut out for this work. Uh, seeing it as like that that we are an anomaly was frustrating. Um, but but to get back to your original question, I think it does bring up um, some of the things that I have experienced working with other women that I'm not going to say that every man, like, like that no men bring this to the table, but it is something that I see women in general bring to the table more, which is our communication skills, our attention to detail, our understanding that, like, organization and job site cleanliness is critical to actually getting the job done. It's not just showing up and brute forcing and getting all the big picture work done. It's like the odds and ends and the details of cleanliness um, are super important. It's funny that you say one of them is to keep the place clean because the amount of times I've had like my mom say like contractor came in and did the work and they left such a mess it's almost just accepted he's going to come in do the work and you're going to clean up after he leaves and i struggle with that a little bit because i don't that's something that's uh culturally imposed on us right that women are the cleaners and so i struggle with saying like that women women carpenters are are better at keeping a tidy job site because what sometimes happens then is like women will get hired and then be like okay so you can be the one who cleans up the job site one example is, like, if you go to a community build project, right? Like, someone's having a barn raise, and this happens a lot in the Ithaca area. And what happens is we divide ourselves into the jobs we think we are supposed to do. So the men will, like, jump in and grab the tools, regardless of whether they are actually better than the women at using a circular car. And the women will go and do the, like, you know, the helping and the cleaning up and the carrying materials and the, like, child care and the providing food and the in the supporting roles and so I, I want to recognize all of that work is so valuable and not to say that that's the only work that women can or should be doing but to say like hey dudes do the child care like be a contractor who cleans up be the helper I mean it is so insane that it's, it's really hard to address those things and see a change because they are so deeply seated in our culture I would love to hear about Puerto Rico. What um, what were you doing there, and how were you able to do it? Yeah, great. I would I would love to talk about it because it's basically what we've been working on for the you know the past couple months has been our main area of focus. So, you know, ever since Hurricane Maria hit, I personally have felt driven to try to find a way to get down there and help. And then especially observing, as much as you can observe from a remove up here in the States, watching through through the media what's happening there, it really felt like we were pulling away. We weren't helping them yeah. as nearly as much as we should. Yeah. And, of course, you know, Donald Trump throwing paper towels at a crowd of Puerto Ricans just, you know, exemplifies what is really happening on a larger scale? And so I had the sense come up here, but it's, it's hard to know how bad it really is until you get down there. So I wanted uh, to find a way to go and, and contribute, but just wasn't sure how to plug in. One of mine was involved in a volunteer trip. And when I saw on Facebook she was going down, I said, oh, I want to go with you. But it was like the day before she left. So I couldn't, I couldn't join that volunteer trip. But while she was down there, uh, she she texted me and said, there is so much work here. 
we have to find a way for you to plan a Hammerstone trip in March. So after that conversation with her, she and I, and then some other people who got involved, started figuring out how we could um, run a, a reconstruction, a rebuild trip. Um, in the interim, then, uh, a group of three volunteers from that first trip, they came back home to the States and then turned right around and flew back to Puerto Rico and started this organization called Rogues on Rouge, where they were just working on replacing roofs. So houses that had had their roof blown off, maybe they had a blue tarp, maybe they had nothing. Um, they were putting new metal roofs on those houses. And they got connected with the mayor of Budago, which is the town in which they and then we were working and were identifying projects that needed roofs um, and uh, with the mayor. And the mayor was actually, the mayor's office was helping purchase materials and had um, some labor force that they could contribute to Rogues on Roofs work. So we continued our conversation with Rogues on Roofs, and they identified a project where they had replaced the roof on this woman's house, but she still couldn't move back in because she had been without any roof, not even a tarp, for four months. And without a roof in a tropical island, you know, pretty much rains every day, and so her whole interior was water damaged. Now, this project was beyond the scope of work that Rose on Roofs was interested in taking on. They really wanted to do that, like, first line of defense, get the roofs on. We were looking for something more in-depth where we could come and, uh, and tackle a better project. And so for us, it was like we wanted to make the work that Rose on Roofs had already done of putting the roof on Pooch's house. We wanted to make that worthwhile, like, actually get her back into her house so that, you know, they weren't just putting a roof on a house that then nobody moved back into. Um, and it was also... You know, we needed an in. We needed um, we needed a project that would get us there, so that we could see on the ground what was actually going on, and from there, hopefully, find a way to continue doing this work, build some connections, um, network, and uh, and find other projects that that needed this work. So, my colleague Julie Kitson and I, we flew down in February for a little reconnaissance visit to to. Pooch's house, determine if that was the project that we wanted to work on, and then also build some other connections, one of which was hooking up with the YWCA in San Juan, um, and so that ended up being a really fruitful connection because when we came back for this trip in early March, we, we ended up teaching a workshop at the YWCA. Excellent. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. So... So, so then we came back from this reconnaissance trip, and we had to figure out what the structure of this work trip was going to be. And at the time, we were still thinking about maybe opening up it up to volunteers, um, but just felt like that logistical organization, on top of us just trying to get there and do this work, was more than we could take on at that time. So what we ended up doing was organizing a group of um, seven women builders, mostly from the Ithaca area. In fact, all of us except for Lisa Howard were from the Ithaca area. Lisa was part of Rose on Roofs, and she ended up being our logistical coordinator um, down in Puerto Rico. So there were six trade women from Ithaca, and we flew down for a 10-day trip and worked on the renovation of Pucho's house, which involved pulling out all of her moldy, waterlogged wall covering, um, 
dealing with the floor. So she had she had a concrete slab floor that had had linoleum on it, but that had gotten so damaged that actually some some other folks had actually scraped up most of the linoleum, but we still had to prep the floor, deal with this really punky concrete and some linoleum glue still on there. So we had to grind this whole concrete floor in order to tile. So we ground the floor, we tiled the floor. Our intention was to, as we opened up the walls, deal with a, with whatever minor electrical patches needed to happen and then put the wall covering back on. But what we found as we got into it was that the electrical work, the existing electric, was such a mess that we could not, in good conscience, just put it back with a few patches as is. Um, so first of all, just a quick word about construction in Puerto Rico. Um, most most of the houses, that, like the most well-built houses and the houses that stand up to hurricanes the best are built out of concrete, right? And then you find um, quite a lot of thick frame houses, especially out in the country, which is where we were in Curabo. Um So thick frame houses, they're built with like two-by-fours, um, two-by-four walls and two-by-four roofs, wood, wood construction, which is how we build up here in mostly in the, in the Northeast. Um, but those houses are, it's the least expensive way to build, but it's also the least hurricane resistant. Um, and it's also um, what what people do when they are building is they'll just they'll just build it. You know, they'll have a family member who has a house and they want to build a house. They'll just build a house without any code or zoning in the back or side yard. Little ranchackly. Um, right, it's kind of ranchackly. So you see these hillsides and there's just like houses kind of perched and they just kind of. It is a real do-it-yourself culture for um, for all the great things that brings. But what it means is that houses get built not up to the standards to which they should be built, right? They don't have hurricane ties which tie the roof to the walls and, and the walls to the foundation. Or they don't use enough screws putting the metal roof on it so the metal roof pulls off. It's not because they're dumb or sloppy. It's because they're, these are the poorest people, right? They don't have the resources to build. They don't have the resources to buy land through the proper channels to then have title and deed to that land and that house, right? They are trying to find a way to get a home for themselves. Um, so just as an aside, this is one of the challenges with, with getting support, re reconstruction support or rebuild support from organizations like FEMA, because FEMA will only give support to people who have, like, documentation that they own this house and this land. And so much of the construction in the country of Puerto Rico is just people building wherever. doesn't mean that these people don't need or deserve their houses rebuilt, right? They people who need housing, right? But our bureaucratic structures say, show me a deed, and if you can't, we're not going to help you. But the other thing that it means is that in, in the context of the work that we were doing, um, when we encountered her electrical situation, like clearly it was just a neighbor, a family member had helped her wire this house, but it wasn't done up to the standards, you know, the code and the, the local standards that they so they, they do, do have code. Yeah. Like they just don't have the money to go get a permit or to prove that they own the land. 
or the front, right? And the, the bureaucracy there is so slow, right? You go and you apply for it, and you might have to, like, kick a little something to the official to make sure that your permit actually gets seen on a reasonable time frame. I mean, it's all the challenges of, you know, bureaucracy that we encounter here that are even more challenging there, right? There's, there's just, there isn't enough support to make that bureaucratic structure efficient enough to work for the people. I mean, if everybody was just waiting for a permit, nobody would have house to live in. So, you know, I see both sides of of bureaucracy, right? It It is a structure which ensures that everybody gets things built to the standards to which they should be built, but it can also be a bottleneck, which means that people just don't have anything. And, you know, here in upstate New York, there's, there are plenty of people even here who are just like, I just want to build my cabin in the woods, and they just go and do it. And some people do that really well and and understand but, you know, they basically still build the code, even though they're, like, doing it totally off the radar. And then there are the people who, you know, don't have enough knowledge or the time or the resources to build it up to those standards, and they can build something that's essentially unsafe. So, you know, there are two sides to this, like, the challenge of bureaucracy. And so in, in Pucha's case, what, what we saw was that her the wiring situation was really unsafe. So it, it, it was just the, um, the plastic-coated electrical wires just run through the walls. Um, I was wondering, what was the electrical stuff? Like, did you have to rewire the entire house, or...? Well, right, so what we, what we bumped into was that when, when um, the way it was wired before, they just ran Romex, which is the plastic-coated um, electrical wires through the house, and... and um, there were just so many places where rodents had chewed the plastic off fire that there were just there was just bare copper. So what happens in that situation is if those two copper lines touch, they spark, and it's a it's a fire hazard. Um, the 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 code that they follow in Puerto Rico is the same as the, the code that they follow here, um, except there are always local. Uh, like supplements that are added on top of the, the base code. And so in Puerto Rico, the way that they have to build is to actually run everything as conduit inside the walls. Um, so that wasn't done in Kucha's house. Was, conduit is the pipe that wires run through, is that right? Right, so it's a metal pipe that then you run the wires through that, and that would protect those wires from being chewed by, by rodents. So as we were working, you know, we had this scope of work developed in our anticipated time frame, and we opened up the walls and we started seeing this electric, and we, we really wanted to be able to put Pooch's house back together at the end of this 10-day trip, but at a certain point we realized that the situation there was, was so bad that we couldn't, we couldn't just patch it and put it back. There were, you know, electro, electrical splices within the wall, all this tube Romex, and even if we even if we patched it and put new Romex in, we knew that the rodents would get back in there and, and chew it again. So um, the serendipitous thing that happened um, that made this decision easier for us was when we taught our workshop, our carpentry workshop at the YWCA, we met a woman electrician, licensed woman electrician on the island. She's one of maybe 18 women electricians on the island. Um, so we made this connection 
with a local tradeswoman, which woman, which was exciting for us, something that we were hoping to have happen. And so we actually brought Lisa out to Kucha's. She took a look at it, and and we talked through like what what would be entailed in in rewiring Kucha's house so that it would be put back together safely. So what we decided, so we didn't have enough time. This was like you know two days before we had to return to the state, so we didn't have enough execute that work um so we came back and are now trying to figure out how to get back down there contract with lisa to to actually rewire um Pooch's house and then do the rest of our work which is basically rehanging the wall covering rehanging new wall covering and hanging her doors and um you know just odds and ends detail work uh to get it to where she can move back in and so for us, it's exciting to be able to, like, actually work with a tradesperson on the island, right? Not just be bringing this external labor force to do this work, but to contract with um, someone on the island to do that work. Um, to build that connection with a, a tradeswoman is exciting. And she, she's she been sharing photos with us of the, the workshops that she does. She teaches, like, electrical, basic electrical and electrical safety workshops in the school. And so, you know, she's a, a tradeswoman of the same sort of mindset as us of like educating and being model, like letting people know that this is actually a career path for women and girls. You said there were women already down there and they were part of the organization with the roofs or they were locals. There was one woman from Rose on Roofs, and the other six of us came down from Ithaca. Oh, okay. Um, so, and, and she's not, I mean, she's from the States. She's not Puerto Rican. Um, she just had been there longer um, ha- and had, uh, you know, developed some connections. You know, had made, had made friends in the community, had developed connections with, like, the the hardware stores, right, the hardware stores in town knew her, so that, and then she also, a lot of our logistical work was, you know, doing materials runs and grocery shopping and helping us, um, she really helped us uh, have our, be able to run our, our little home base so that we could essentially go and work long days on the job site to try to get our work done, and she did, she also popped in to help us with the actual construction work whenever she could, Um, but she doesn't have the same trades background as we do, even though she's developing these skills. So she was um, bringing really her expertise, which is Spanish language, um, having already built connections in the community, and and being able to statistical work and uh, keeping our our little homestead running, because we were just camping camping while we were there we had a trailer with a kitchenette and a bathroom um so she was like making us breakfast and um coordinating with poochas we made a dinner every night and, and that kind of work really valuable work yeah. awesome so she was like you're in there that was my other question is where were you staying when you were doing this you camped like on her land no, no no that's actually a great question um because i do want to talk about uh edmundo jimenez who um, was essentially our host. Um, Mundo is a, a he's a businessman in, in Puerto Rico. He lives in Caguas, which is the larger um, city near Gurabo. Um, about ten years ago, he started the Equus Center, which is an equine therapy farm, and um, and built this like amazingly beautiful 
center where they use forces to work with um, folks with all types of challenges, so um, physical disabilities, PTSD, um, uh, you know, emotional or psychological challenges. I'm not, I, I don't even, in fact, know the full extent of the types of people that they would work with, but these people come and the horses, you know, give them... It's, a, it's a, like an instant connection, and it gives them this um, avenue to work on these, these other things that they're working on. So Edmundo had built this farm. He had, like, you know, put his life savings into buying this farm, put 10 years of his life into developing this center, and Hurricane Maria destroyed the entire thing. I mean, there are buildings that were there the day before the hurricane that are just gone now. Um, if you go to our website, you can. I have a before after picture that, that I mean, I pulled those off of his Facebook page that show the farm before Hurricane Maria and the day after. It's not what the farm looks like now because a lot of cleanup work has happened. Mm -hmm. So, any the original volunteer group that went down to Puerto Rico through their leadership had connections in the equine therapy world, and that's what led them to Mundo's farm. And so they went down. Um, to help Mundo clean up his farm, understanding that they were helping this organization that does really valuable work for people. And and that's how we got that place that we could camp. Now, unfortunately, in the intervening two months, Mundo made the decision to not reopen the equine therapy center. Understandably, because he's 60-ish and just put 10 years of his life into it, it's hard to envision putting 10 more years of your life into rebuilding something, you know, and he got hardly any uh, insurance support for the reconstruction. So I completely get it. And this is sort of, you know, you can imagine how hard it would be to tackle the rebuild of your home or your business or whatever it is you need to rebuild on top of just, like, the day-to-day -day existence in the aftermath of a disaster like this. Like, it takes 110% of your time and energy and emotional energy just to get through everyday life in the way that, you know, like, driving through town, there are no stoplights still. You know, that's, like, an additional stressor. And so then to contemplate rebuilding your home or rebuilding your business on top of that, like, it's completely understandable that... <laughs> feel like you have to walk away from that at this point. So now Mundo has decided not, unfortunately, not reopen the equine therapy center, which is clearly really hard for him. But he does still have the vision of this farm, and it's still a really beautiful spot. This farm being an educational center. I mean, he he was doing work before the hurricane of bringing in local kids who are, I mean, this resonates with my vision, who are sort of falling under the radar in the in the traditional college prep attitude in the schools. Mm. He was great to learn um, trades around horse maintenance, like farrier, learning how to be farriers. They're doing these workshops um, for kids on that front. And so when we came down and talked about our vision of, you know, rebuilding the trades and especially rebuilding the trades in this, non-traditional population of women, um, that really resonated with him. So we have a, um, you know, similar vision in that front. And just the fact that we were able to camp at the farm was 
allowed, you know, allowed us to do our work, to, you know, take, to use his resources there. I mean, he has electric, he has water, he has a kitchen, he has a bathroom, you know, all of those things are resources that we needed in order to function effectively. So that was, it was, and, and, and we, we paid him for, um, you know, a nominal amount, but what we could yeah. to um, reimburse him for those resources that we were using, and then also just to have that connection with some someone who has a similar vision and mission and a space that, that works really well for what we're trying to do. And he was excited just to have that energy of rebuilding on the farm again. That's amazing. I mean, that's how you yeah. rebuild is the pooling of resources, right? I mean, the government is basically not really doing much of anything, right? So, in the months that passed from when we took our recon trip in February to when we went to do our actual rebuild work in March, we saw changes. We saw, like, electrical lines had been picked up, right? We saw more um, houses that had gotten their tarps replaced with real metal roofs. It's just mm-hmm. slow. I mean, it just seems it seems too slow. Yeah, and such a tremendous amount of work. It's, it can be overwhelming, but I just feel like <laughs> we need to be sending all of our resources in whatever form um, to be helping down there. One of the things that's um, you know when we got back, uh, we almost immediately heard about this, um, and then found this press release for. Um, an, an initiative by Governor Cuomo. It says, with press release, Governor Cuomo launches the new New York Stands with Puerto Rico Recovery and Rebuilding Initiative. And we were like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we want to do. Governor Cuomo convenes a roundtable with philanthropic nonprofits rebuilding, labor, and academic partners to discover Puerto Rico's, sorry, to discuss Puerto Rico's recovery efforts. And we're like, we just came back. This is what we're doing. How can we get involved in this effort? And and we've been like trying to reach out. You know, I we, we sent an email and I called the press link at the bottom of this press release. And I actually called um, our uh, our local assemblywoman's office, Barbara Whitson, who they were very helpful. Or, or, you know, pointed us in the direction of getting in touch with the labor unions doing this work. And then we called um, Assemblyman Crespo's office because he's, he's listed on this press release and he's um, as, as being involved in this roundtable and, you know, is involved in Puerto Rico recovery. And, and we just like, you know, we're such a tiny organization. And we're an organization of women, right? Like struggling to break into, you know, the New York government and the union, right? The the unions have this, um, right? They, they, they are tackling this work. How does a small non-union, like basically collective of women builders get involved in the, basically the, the funds that come from initiatives like that? I, I love your mission. I love what you're. I love what motivates you, um, and what you've done. And I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and and lending your voice to WLRN. Um, oh gosh, thank you so much. I'm, I mean, it's great to like talk to people who with whom this passion resonates.
Is there anything you'd like to add for our audience that is mostly lesbian and radical feminist? Being a woman in the trades, um, because it is so male-dominated, like, for most of my career, I've worked with only men, right? Like, I spent 10 years being the only woman on a job site, right? Right. And I have not had the opportunity to work with other women, women until I created my own um created up my own business and basically hired women. Yes. Um, this workshop in Puerto Rico was the first time that I got to work on a, on a, a, a crew of a significant size where everyone involved was a woman. And... Every, every one of us down there, we were just like, oh, my gosh, this is so nice. It was just, <laughs> yeah. so, it was just nice to, to be appreciated for what we bring to the table, which is different, right, to see that recognized by other women and to not have to work through the inevitable BS that comes up any time you work with men. As good-hearted or well-meaning as they may be, there is always a level of explanation that has to happen on top of the work you do. So I think I can speak for everybody who went on this trip. We're all just still kind of buzzing from that feeling of enjoying working with each other and trying to figure out how to continue to do that. This has been an interview with owner and founder of Hammerstone Carpentry and School of Carpentry for Women, Maria Klemperer-Johnson. Maria lent us her unique perspective as a woman in the trades. She told us how she came to carpentry and what it's like to work with women and offer them an opportunity to empower themselves. She addresses what maybe holds women back from pursuing what is traditionally thought of as men's work. In Puerto Rico, Ms. Klemperer-Johnson and a team of women used their power and resources to make life more livable for residents affected by Hurricanes Irma and Maria, and she's not done yet. Thank you, Maria, for granting WLRN this interview. But more importantly, thank you for the knowledge and encouragement you give to women, and for the example of empowerment you set in living your truth. 